If you are here this morning and are longing for hope and blessing and peace, I have good news for you today. If you are here and you long for sustenance and strength for endurance through hard times you may experience, I have good news for you today. If you're here and you long to be better equipped as a husband, father, mother, uh, wife, as a man, as a woman, I have good news for you today. If you long for direction in your life, for wisdom and that, that decision that's coming up that's pressing, I have good news for you today. If you long to grow spiritually and become more like Christ and have victory over that anger, whatever issue you're dealing with, I have good news for you today. And if you long for our church family here at Solway to, to be fruitful, to impact many lives, I have good news for you today. And that good news is that the Word of God is powerful and it is effective in all these areas. And I don't say that in a flippant or a, a superficial way that sometimes we can come, ah, oh, God's Word. It's not flippant. It's not superficial. But truly, if you want these longings to be fulfilled, we must come to God's Word. Last week, we, we saw in the passage that Jesus' mission is to preach the good news. It is not to physically heal everyone. It isn't to physically liberate the poor, the oppressed, but to liberate them spiritually and eternally. Our passage this morning builds on this. And what we'll see is the authority and the power of Jesus' work. It's all throughout this passage, and it's actually really neat. I really think it's a lot of fun. But we'll see that the, the purpose that Jesus came is in here is to preach the good news because it is authoritative and it's powerful. So this morning we're going to break the, the message up into three points. The first point, we'll go through the text, and we'll see Jesus' strategy for ministry. And then the second part is why. The why behind that strategy. And then the third part is what does that mean for you and our church family? So those three parts we're going to look at. And I, right as we, before we get in it, I want to say that I am really passionate about God's word because I am convinced. I am absolutely convinced that I am hopeless without it. My faithfulness as a husband, as a father, as a pastor, as a worker is, is completely tied to how I respond to God's word. I'm convinced of that. And that's why I'm very passionate about God's word. And I'm certain that our faithfulness and fruitfulness here at Solway, uh, in your household, in your work, is tied intimately to how we respond to God's word. And so this morning, let's dive into it. If you have your Bibles and haven't, please turn to Luke 4, uh, finish up Luke chapter 4. Uh, if you don't have your Bibles or your phone, right in front of you will be a Bible uh, in the pew. And it's going to be on page 808 if you're using a Bible from the church. And so the first part we're looking at is Jesus' strategy for ministry. The Son of God, God incarnate, what was his strategy for ministry while he was on earth? We'll see that through the text. So let's, uh, before we get there, let me see this. So I find this very exciting. You may not. It comes together very well. Um, but clearly in this passage, clearly it is about Jesus' word, about him preaching it and how it's authoritative and powerful. Look at this. Just as we briefly look at this. Verse 32, it opens up. That they were astonished at his teaching and it possessed authority. After he's done, verse 36, after uh, with the demon, they ask, what is this word? For with it, there's authority. 
And then after that, at the, at the end of it, verse 43, 44, that's when he says, I must preach the good news. It's like a bookend. It ties it together. And then in the middle, there's two specific examples with the demon, uh, Peter's mother-in-law, where his word is authoritative and literally casts out demons, uh, heals, and then we see a bunch of people come with the same issues, and he takes care of them. And so it's all about God's word, Jesus' word. It's powerful, it's authoritative, it bookends it, and there's examples of that power. So this, this whole passage, and it's like one whole day. It starts in the synagogue, then it says that, then the sun sets, and then the next morning is when he starts leaving. So it's all kind of one day, a, a day and a morning, and it's all about God's word tied together in all the examples. Amen? Let's go home, right? No, no, no. It's good. So it comes together. Um, just so you know, I'm not faking it. I'm not making it up. It's tied to God's word. So here we go. Verse 31. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. You'll see a lot that a lot of these things that are recorded happens on the Sabbath. A lot. And it's intentional. And we'll get to that uh, next year probably when we get to check five. I'm just kidding. Moving on. Uh, and they were astonished for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out, and reports about him went out to every place in the surrounding region. So the Sabbath, uh, it's about this word of possessing authority. We just saw this in the last passage, verse 14, 15, Luke 4. He's going around preaching in the synagogues. This is what Jesus was doing. And then as I mentioned, this is a section, uh, the authority of his word is vividly portrayed with casting out this demon. Vividly. So there's this man possessed by a demon. A side note, Christians cannot be possessed by demons because we have the Holy Spirit remaining in us. But we can be oppressed. We cannot be, op- uh, we cannot be possessed. We can be oppressed, for example, with temptations, as we saw in the beginning of Luke 4. We can't be possessed, but we can be oppressed. But Jesus comes, and this demon is terrified. This isn't some mocking, ha, Jesus. This is, the demon is terrified. In 1 John, John writes, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And in Judaism at that time, demonic power being crushed, they knew was going to be a characteristic of this messianic age. So here you are. We're in a synagogue, in a public place. Can you imagine Someone uh, demon-possessed comes in, and they get cast out here. Because that's exactly how it was. They're in a synagogue. It's a public place. Most likely, Jesus is teaching. And in response to Jesus' authoritative word, this demon cries out, it says. Cries out, terrified, that Jesus was here to destroy him. So it goes on. And the demon says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. We saw that last week. That the demons and Satan, as James says, they know who God is. They believe and they shudder. They fear him. They don't trust in him, but they fear him. The Holy One of God. Uh, in Isaiah, the Lord God is referred to the Holy One of Israel. There's some connections there. Back in Luke 1, 
uh, verses 31 35, there's a connection between the Holy One and the Davidic Messiah. And so in this reference, we see Jesus is the bearer of the Spirit and the Messiah. And so it's all tiny. This demon knows this, cries out, and then Jesus rebukes him, right? Be silent and come out. The word of Christ is authoritative and powerful. And this demon came out. And the people, if you can imagine it here, they're like, what is going on? We're just here to worship and read and stuff. And what is this? They said, what is this word? The authority, the power. It commands demons and they come out. And the reports went out. Just like in verse 14, we read the same thing. The reports of this Jesus. He's a very public figure. What is going on? And then it moves on. Verse 38. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. This is Simon Peter, the apostle, Peter. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever. If he's married, this is clear up in 1 Corinthians 9. If you read Peter and read his uh, writings to like husbands and wives, you're like, this guy doesn't know anything about marriage. No, he does. He was married. It is a joke, but moving on. He said they appealed to him on her behalf, and he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she arose and began to serve them. Now this word rebuke is is the same exact word that he used just previously referring to rebuking a demon. Does that mean that the sickness and all sickness has a demon behind it? No, that's not what it means. There's two things being tied to this. Number one is don't overlook how sin is tied to sickness. We live in a fallen world because of our sin, about Adam's sin. Sickness comes because of our fallen world. So don't overlook how sin is tied to our sickness. It was never meant to be like this. Never meant to be. And praise God, in the future, when Christ returns, a new heaven and earth, it will be all done away with. Sickness, no more. Death, no more. Praise God. The, the second part with this, the rebuke, why the rebuke of the fever, is again the emphasis of God's authoritative and powerful word. It is Jesus' word as a rebuke that caused the healing. That's the key here. The emphasis, Jesus' word is powerful. They recognize it. They cast out a demon. His word just healed Peter's mother-in-law. And she immediately began to serve them. So, seeing that, how would people respond, right? Verse 40. Now, when the sun was setting, all those who had any who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Christ. So they have a man here who's literally healing people. And so they're like, all right, let's go, bring them. Let's go get grandma down the road, bring them in. Like, who would not do that? And so they start bringing tons of people, and he's healing them all. He's healing because he's compassionate, but for a greater purpose. Jesus doesn't heal. He doesn't do miracles just because. Listen to Acts. This is Peter preaching. Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. Peter says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. We see that all through scripture is that miracles and signs weren't just done for, for the sake of it. They were done to validate the message of the person doing it. 
Signs and miracles were done to validate the message of the, of the one doing it. Therefore, Jesus came doing miracles and signs, validating his message. Uh, his message. The apostles, we see it in Acts. Um, Acts 14, uh, 3 specifically, a, refer- a reference here. They do miracles and signs because it validates their message. And so Jesus is doing this. He's healing people. Yes, he's compassionate. No question. We see that in the Gospels. But the main purpose is because it validates his message. It comes back to his word. It's powerful. It's authoritative. He's doing signs. He's doing miracles that validate his message, his word. And so we see that tied here. It says he lays hands on everyone, each one of them. And this is showing his compassion. It's individual care. You're not just a number. You're not just one of the flock. He cares specifically, individually for each one. The demons he cast out by his word are crying, you are the son of God. You are the son of God. And he does not allow them to speak. Why? Who tells us? Because they know he's the Christ. That kind of begs the question, but why would he not want that? these demons yelling this out? Uh, probably two reasons. Number one, an undesirable endorsement. Who wants to be endorsed by a demon? Already, the Pharisees will see, claim that Jesus does his, uh, gets his power from the printed demons, Beelzebub. We see that later, that they're already uh, uh, um, blank on the word. They're already saying that this is what Jesus is doing. So an endorsement from a demon probably will not help. Another reason might be that the, the popular reaction to a Messiah might include a bunch of political expectations that Jesus was trying to avoid right now. So he, he silences the demons. And then finishing up this passage, verse 42, and then when it was day, he departed and went to a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. Again, they have a man who is literally keeping away all pain, all loss, all sorrow. Healed ones who have been sick, maybe close to death, he's been healing. And so they want to keep him. And who wouldn't? And so they try to keep him from leaving. Verse 43, but he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And then concluding at verse 44, and he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. So understand that they're trying to keep him. This guy is doing incredible things that we've never seen. But Jesus says, I must preach. I must, he says. This is that he says, for I was sent for this purpose. Jesus' purpose is to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. Not to heal everyone, not to liberate them from the Roman regime, if I can use that word. He wasn't there to set the slaves free. He wasn't there to revolt. He he was there to preach the good news. We as a church, as we looked at a little bit last week, were to make disciples, grow in our obedience to Christ, make disciples. Though we 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 don't heal, we pray for healing. Though we do not do social justice, we work for true justice, but our mission is to make disciples. And and Jesus says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. And so we see here, this good news is that the king is here. Jesus has come to rule. He is Lord. He died. He was raised to fill scripture and to put an end to sin, to atone for sin. And he ascended to heaven and he will return. The good news of the kingdom. He says, I must preach the goodness of the kingdom to the other towns as well. To the other towns as well. Don't overlook those outside your area. 
We're to make disciples of all nations, not just our one group, but everywhere. Jesus said that, verse 44, it's exactly what he did. He left, went south to Judea, and he preached as he went, preaching different areas. So, as uh, James Goodlow, a commentator, says, this authoritative, exercising, astonishment and amazement producing, powerful, fever healing, service inspiring, sickness and disease healing, demon rebuking, good news, kingdom of God, purposeful preaching word is none other than the word of God, as we see in this passage. Jesus' strength for ministry was preaching his powerful and authoritative word. That's why he came, he says. He healed and he liberated people from demons, no question, but that was not his priority. Those things were done to validate his word and message. So that's, that was Jesus' strategy for ministry, was to preach the word. That brings us to our second section. Why? Why the strategy? What's the why behind this? I'm going to warn you. I'm going to quote a lot of scripture in this section, rapidly. Because I want God's word to convince you. I want us to be convinced by God's word, and that's just what Alex says. And to show you how prevalent this truth is everywhere. And if you, if you miss something, I'll go back and ponder and meditate. I invite you to, to re-listen to it on our website, on the podcast, or re-watch on YouTube. But, so I'm going to go kind of quick through this, not because it's not important, but just to show the, the large amount of this truth. So why is preaching the gospel, preaching God's word, Jesus' priority? Because God's word is powerful, it's effective, it's sufficient, and it's authoritative. It's because God's word is powerful, it is effective, sufficient, and authoritative. Number one, God's word is powerful and effective in evangelism and in outreach. It is the gospel, God's word, that the Spirit uses to regenerate and to save a person. People are not loved into the kingdom of God. We never see that in scripture. Loving and being kind is not our ultimate mission in reaching out to people, but they do help validate our message. Kind of, if I can use this comparison, the signs and miracles validate Jesus' message. Yeah, no doubt. Our love and kindness validate our message as well, in a way. But not, do not mistake what validates our message with the message. It is a message that will... It is the message that will bring people to Christ as we evangelize, as we reach out. Uh, this past week, I do not know how many people look at the posts I put on Facebook. I don't know. But this last week, I posted a question that said this. What overcomes the hardness of heart, the blinded eyes, and the suppression of truth of unbelievers as described within the Testament? And the answer, not being nice. That does not do that. But it's God's spirit through God's word that gives new unbelievers a new heart. It's what opens their blind eyes and allows them to see the truth and set them free. It is God's word. So listen to this. I'm going to do a quick sweep through Acts. As I was studying this, I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm going to go through Acts and I'm going to see it. Try to pinpoint all the times people came to Christ and what preceded it. What was it? So let me run through this. Listen to the connection between people coming to Christ and God's word. Acts 2.41, 3,000 were saved after the preaching of Peter. Acts 5.14 says that more believers were added following the signs of the apostles 
uh, used to authenticate their message. Acts 6, 7, the word of God increased and the number of disciples multiplied. That's tied together. Acts 8, 4, Philip preached and signs and great joy came in that city, assuming that meant salvation. Acts 8, again, Philip preached and explained the passage in Isaiah to the Ethiopian, who then believed. Acts 9, Saul is saved when Jesus himself proclaimed to him and when Jesus sent Ananias to talk to him. Acts 9.31, the church multiplied and is connected to Saul preaching boldly. Acts 9.32, the household turned to the Lord after Peter heals Aeneas in Jesus' name. Acts 9.42, Peter raises Tabitha and many believe. Acts 10.44, Gentiles, the god fears received the Holy Spirit after Peter preaches. Acts 11, I'm going, follow with me. If you're flipping through the Bibles, good luck. Great number, Acts 11.20, a great number believed by the preaching of Antioch, Acts 13.12. The proconsul believed, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord, Acts 13.43. After Paul preaches, many in Antioch and Pisidia believed, Acts 14.1. After Paul and Barnabas spoke in the synagogue, many Jews and Greeks believed, Acts 14.21. Many disciples made were made from the preaching in Derby, Acts 16.5. The churches were strengthened by Paul and Timothy in a letter from the Jerusalem Council, and they increased in numbers daily. Acts 16.11, Lydia and her household follow Christ after Paul's teaching. Acts 16, the Philippian jailer and his family believed after Paul spoke the word of the Lord to them. Acts 17, almost done. Many believe that Paul and Silas preached in Thessalonica. Acts 17.12, many believe that Paul and Silas preached in Berea. Acts 17.34, some believe after Paul preaches in Athens. Acts 18.8, many Corinthians believed after hearing Paul preach. Acts 28, some Jews in Rome believe after Paul expounds God's word, the kingdom of God to them. Almost all of the salvation we see in Acts is tied to the preaching of God's word. The ones that are not directly, such as Saul or when there's miracles done, almost assumes that preaching was included within that. So hearing this, that in Acts, the salvation is tied to the preaching of God's word by whether it be the, the official pastor or elders or those going out, is tied to preaching of God's word. And this should not surprise us. This is everywhere else in the New Testament. Listen to just a few. I'm not going to run through them like I did with Acts. Romans 1.16, which I know a lot of us probably know. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The Jew first and also the Greek. Romans 10. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Verse 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing to the word of Christ. A couple more. First Peter 1. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. In Luke 16, if you remember the parable, uh, not really a parable, but a teaching of Lazarus and the rich man. Do you remember that? Where Lazarus didn't get much, but the rich man dead, then he died. Lazarus was in the place of torment. Oh, I'm sorry, the rich man was in the place of torment, but Lazarus was in heaven. And then the rich man says... Abraham, please send Lazarus just to give me some water. He says, nope, I can't. There's a chasm between us. He says, okay, at least send Lazarus back to my brothers who are living so that they can be warm. And then Abraham, what does he say? They have the law and the prophets. 
that is good enough. If they don't believe that, even if someone comes back raised from the dead, which Jesus does, they won't believe. The sufficiency that is the word of God that will lead people to Christ. And then last here, Matthew 13, the parable of the soils. It is the word of God that goes, that three of the four soils rejects, and it is the word of God that comes, the agent that allows that one soil to bear fruit. That does not even mention 1 Corinthians 1.18, James 1.21, 2 Timothy 3.15. It goes on and on and on. It is God's word that is the powerful, is the authoritative word that is the agent that God the Spirit uses to give new birth to people. So the priority of ministry is the word of God because it is authoritative and effective for evangelism and outreach. Moving on. God's word is powerful and effective in discipleship in all areas of life. Just as it is in salvation, it is effective and powerful in every area of life. Listen to this. Let me run through this. Do you want to grow as a Christian? Do you want to be more like Christ as a spouse, as a parent, as a worker, as a student, as a man, as a woman? Well, listen, John 17, 17, Jesus praying to his father, he says, sanctify, make him holy in the truth. Your word is truth. First Thessalonians 2, 13, Paul writes, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you have heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Psalm 119, the biggest chapter in the Bible, 9-11, how? How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding according to your word. Two verses later. If I, I have stored up your word in my heart, that I might not sin against you. John 8. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Again, that does not touch Acts 20.32, John 15.3, Matthew 4.4, 4, John 6.63, Psalm 19.7, Hebrews 4.12-13, to 13, Isaiah 5.10-11, Ephesians 5.26-52. I would love to read it, but I know you guys want me to go through all of those. But I want to list it just to show you this is everywhere. Now, do you want to be blessed? Do you want to be blessed in your life? Do you want to be happy and have peace? Right? Anyone else like, yep. Amen. Amen. Psalm 1-1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Psalm 19.8, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Psalm 119, verse 111, your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. And then verse 165 of Psalm 119, great peace have those who love your law, nothing can make them stumble. Again, that does not touch Psalm 19.11, Psalm 119.5, 6, 56, and 143. On and on and on we can go. It is God's word. It is God's word that is powerful and effective in all these areas. Do you want victory in spiritual warfare? I'll get one verse here. This will make you happy. Ephesians 6.17, Paul says, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Do you want to be equipped and prepared as a leader, a mother, a husband, as a worker? 2 Timothy 3.16, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Do you have difficult and big decisions coming up? Housing, career, college, marriage, dating, all that kind of stuff. Do you want direction and guidance? 
Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Psalm 119, verse 24, your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Do you want wisdom in how to approach certain certain situations that come up at work, at home, how to talk to someone? Psalm 19, 7, the testimony of the Lord is sure. Make it wise, the simple, amen, for all the simple people in the room like me. All right, now we're on board. Psalm 119, 98, listen, I love this. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the age, for I keep your precepts. The word of God is what's doing this. Again, that doesn't touch Psalm 119, verse 104, 130. I skipped over that for the sake of time. Do you want, this is my second last point in here, do you want to be strengthened and comforted and have endurance through the trials you're going through? Psalm 119, 52, when I, take, when I think of your rules from a fold, I take comfort, O Lord. And listen to this. Psalm 119, verse 92 to 93. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you give me life. I skip to verse 28 and look at that, Psalm 119. And the last one, do you want hope? Do you want hope, light to shine in the place of despair and discouragement? In Psalm 119, that massive chapter, over and over and over, the psalmist says, I hope in your word. You read it all over the place. I hope in your word. So my hope is that you are overwhelmed. And I flew through them. So you're overwhelmed by these verses. Because there's they're all over the place. And they all point to the power and the effectiveness of God's word in every area of life. It's God's word that will enable us to be faithful. And it's my hope that we that this inspires us to experience exactly what the word is saying. So that brings us to the third section. No, it does not. <laughs> the third point of the second section, and this will end and we'll go to third. Kind of gets you on your toes. The preaching of the word was Jesus' priority. That's very clear. And it's very clear that was the priority of the early church. Preaching the word. Let's go on another sweep through Acts already, right? The priority of Acts. Yep, do it again, AJ. Sweeping through. Follow with me. If you're writing this done, good luck. Acts 4.31. The church, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. What do they do? And they continue to speak the word of God with boldness. Acts 5.42. It says the apostles did not cease preaching and teaching. Acts 6.4. That's when the apostles state that it's not right to sacrifice prayer and teaching God's word for serving. There we got the idea of deacons. We, that comes in there. Acts 8.4. Those that were persecuted, that scattered, they went out preaching the words that went. Eight, Acts 8.25. John and Peter, they returned, I think it was from jail, preaching the gospel. Acts 8.40. Philip passes through these towns preaching, it says. In, uh, in Acts 9.20, Saul proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. Acts 9.26.28. It's all about Saul preaching boldly. Acts 11.26. Barnabas and, Paul, Barnabas and Saul spent a year, why? Teaching in Antioch. Acts 11, 24, it's Peter, uh, I'm sorry, Luke ties, the word of God increased and multiplied. Acts 13, 5, Saul and Barnabas proclaimed the word of God in Cyprus. Acts 13 is an emphasis, in verse 46, an emphasis on the word of God being preached and spreading. Acts 14, 3, Paul and Barnabas stayed a long time 
in Iconium. Why? To preach God's word. Acts 14, 7. Paul and Barnabas, they fled Iconium, and then they continued to preach the gospel in Lystra and Derby, Lyconia, and the surrounding area. Acts 14, 25. Paul and Barnabas spoke in Perga. Preaching was the focus and priority. Acts 15, 35. Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch. Why? To teach and preach the word of God. Acts 16, 6. It determined where the spirit of God was leading them. The purpose was always... Where is this being leading us to preach the word of God? That's 16.6 verse through 10. Acts 17.2, Paul preaches and reasons in the synagogue of Thessalonica. Acts 17.18, Paul preaches in Athens. Acts 18.4, Paul taught taught and reasoned every Sabbath in the synagogue in Corinth. Acts 18.5, it says Paul was occupied with the word. Acts 18.9, the Lord gave, the Lord, it says, gave Paul direct revelation. Why? To encourage him to go on speaking. Acts 18.11, we're almost done. Paul stayed in Corinth to teach the word of God. For how long? A year and a half. He stayed in Corinth for a year and a half. Why? To teach. Acts 18.19, Paul reasoned in the synagogue in Ephesus. Acts 18.24, Apollo jumps on the scene, and he spoke and taught in Ephesus. Acts 18.27, uh, <coughs> Apollo refuted the Jews in public by the scriptures in Achaia. Acts 19.8, listen to this. Paul preached and persuaded in the synagogue in the hall of Tyrus in Ephesus, for how long? Two years and three months. So if we're in Luke for two years and three months, we're doing pretty good, right? We're just following the example here. I don't think we'll be into that long, but we'll see. Uh, Acts 19.20, the word of God increased and prevailed. If I'm losing you, almost done. Acts 20, uh, Paul talking to the, the elders of Ephesus when he's leaving, the priority of, he, he says the priority of his ministry in Ephesus was to preach the word of Christ. Acts 20, Paul, uh, Paul's ministry was to testify to the gospel. He became the kingdom among them all. Acts 20, again, he extols the part of the word of God. Again, Acts 23, the Lord again gives him direct revelation. Why? To encourage him to continue to speak the word. <coughs> Excuse me. Acts 24, when all is now in chains, he is in front of the Roman ruler Felix. What does he do? He preaches the word. Acts 26, now he's in front of another Roman ruler, Agrippa. What does he do? He preaches the word. And then Acts ends, Acts 28-32, for two years in Rome, Paul proclaims the kingdom of God and taught about Jesus. So the priority of the early church in Acts was to preach and proclaim God's word just like it was in Jesus' ministry. Charles Spurgeon, he said this, where the gospel is fully and powerfully preached, with the Holy Ghost set down from heaven, our churches do not only hold their own, but they win converts. But when that which constitutes their strength is gone, we mean when the gospel is concealed and the life of prayer is slighted, the whole thing becomes a mere form and fiction of just doing what we're doing, keeping the machine running. That is why all over the New Testament, Paul, Jude, James, all the writers will say over and over and make a big deal about contending for the faith. Contending for the faith. Teach sound doctrine. Rebuke those who are teaching unsound doctrine. But please recognize the pattern in Acts. People hated the truth. They hated it. As one, uh, one pastor says, the gospel itself is disagreeable, unattractive, repulsive, and alarming to the world. It exposes sin, condemns pride, convicts the unbelieving heart, and shows human righteousness to be absolutely worthless, defiled, filthy rags. It affirms that the real problems in life are not because of anyone but ourselves. We cannot blame anyone else for our failure and misery. And this is not a popular view, he goes on. 
It comes as bad news to those who love sin. And many who hear it for the first time react with disdain against the messenger. When people refuse to hear the gospel, when people refuse to hear God's word, when people refuse to come to church, when they, we should not assume that their rejection is due to any lack of power or effectiveness of God's word. We should not think that only if we did our method differently that things would went differently. Many times in Acts, Paul is literally, literally beat, stoned, and chased out by a riot. Literally. It seems like, oh, seemingly the majority of the towns he goes to. But he never, ever assumes that the gospel wasn't enough. Because every time he goes out, he gets thrown out. What he does, he gets back up, and he goes to the next town and preaches the word to them. As one leader has put it, Taking off mobs of self-righteous and self-deluded people is normal part of Christianity. Now section three, and this one will go fast. What does that mean for you and for me in our church family? We just saw that the priority of Jesus' ministry is preaching Jesus' word, his authority and powerful world. We saw why the vast list of the, the agency, the power of God's word in all areas of life. So what does that mean for you and for me? Pretty simply, it should be our priority too. If I just put it simply, it should be our priority too. Jesus has given this task to us, the Great Commission. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always in the age. Marriage. Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might seek for her, have it cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Parenting. Acts, uh, Ephesians 6.4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Uh, witnessing at work. 1 Peter 3.15, In your hearts, under Christ the Lord is holy. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do with gentleness and respect. Mentoring. Titus chapter 2, verse 3. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent behavior, not slanders or slaves much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children. Titus 2. And so the priority of God's word, because of, because of its power, its effectiveness, its sufficiency, its authority, this is why we emphasize personal study of God's word. Your study you're meditating, you're swimming in the depths of God's word is for your spiritual growth, is for your growth in leadership, is for your growth in masculinity as a man, is for your growth in your femininity as a woman, as a father, mother, on and on. It is for your sake that you study God's word. It is why as a church we're beginning to emphasize family worship. It is why we believe husbands and fathers should be leading their family worship in whatever form that looks like in your household. It is why we emphasize Sunday school, and it's why we're so excited to get it restarted again. It's because we believe it is integral to our ministry here as we dive into God's Word together. It is why we're beginning to emphasize and begin small groups, because we believe it is going to be incredibly integral as well as the church family digs into God's Word together. And it's why we emphasize inviting your, your, your friends and co-workers to church and in the future to small groups so that they hear God's word proclaimed and prayerfully expecting the Spirit to give them new birth. And if, uh, men, if you're like me, I love practical points, right? We Give me the practice and I'll get things done, right? 
I just told us some practicals in this list. Personal study of God's word. How much time are we putting aside time? Leading regular family worship. What does that look like? Being involved in Sunday school and small groups. Having mentoring relationships where you are being poured into and we are pouring into someone else. Witnessing to your faith of your faith at work and inviting neighbors and friends and coworkers to church and small group. And so we can go out and make the name of Christ known in our households, our, our, our jobs, our state, our region, and so on. And we should expect conflict and opposition just like it happened to Jesus, just as it happened to Paul. We should expect it from ourselves and excuses we'll make. We should expect it from our family. We should expect it at church. We expect it from our church family just because we're, we're people who wrestle with our sinful nature. But conflict and opposition and rejection does not mean we're doing something wrong. It even could mean we're doing something right. Our success is not based on results. That's completely to God and his word. Our success is based on our faithfulness to God's word. It won't be easy. We'll be taking risks. We'll have to be innovative in our approaches. We'll have to work hard. We'll have to rise above the challenges, but it is our call. A.W. Tozer, I'm coming to the end here. He says, we must not imagine ourselves commissioned to make Christ acceptable to big business, the press, the world of sports, or modern education. We are not diplomats, but prophets. And our message is not a compromise, but an ultimatum. Jesus is Lord. Submit to him. You can escape his wrath because he's gracious and he's good. So all those things I mentioned at the beginning, peace, strength, direction, he put me to be a better father, husband, mother, the fruitfulness, all of it is found in and through God's word. And that's not me saying, that's God clearly saying as well through the verses. And so we may we proclaim God's word in our church, in our small group Sunday school classes, uh, at home. May we study, read, and listen to it. May we believe and obey it. And ending with this, may we pray what the psalmist says in Psalm 119. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. And open my eyes that may behold wondrous things out of your law. Pray with me. Father, Lord, we are so thankful that you've given us your word, the living God, the living words here in these books that we have so prevalent in this country. We are so thankful, Lord. God, we are. I am always challenged, always convicted. I assume all of us that I just do not spend enough time in God's word or at least thinking and meditating on what does this mean, wrestling, chewing on things. Lord, give us, uh, just Lord, forgive us. Um, help us to be convinced of the power of your word. Lord, as we go out, um, we are remembered at the good news that Jesus preached. That it is good news that forgiveness and grace is found in Christ, that we can be forgiven of our sin, completely washed away. Lord, may we walk in that grace this week as we get back at work, as we go home, as we uh, confront that person and all these hard situations that come up and ask, we get those, those hard phone calls. Lord, we walk in that grace confident that you are with us, confident of your promises to us, just confident that we are not alone in this because of you, because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Lord, we ask this all in your son's name. Amen.